1: Hello and welcome to this special bonus episode of this spiritual fix. Where today we are going to be talking to Doctor of Physical Therapy, Doctor Jessica Rial, about optimal pelvic health. Enjoy this helpful and informative episode. Hypnosis, mindfulness, meditation, life regression. This Spiritual Fix, Two Mystical Mamas Hacking the Self-Help Game with Anna Stromquist and Christina Wiltsy. Hi, Anna. Hi, Christina.
0: I'm great. I'm so excited because we have a special guest. We have Dr. Jessica Rial. She is a doctor of physical therapy and a board-certified specialist in women's health practicing in Atlanta, Georgia. She owns Southern Pelvic Health Clinic, where she treats patients of all genders, which is very interesting because I think when people hear the term women's health, they usually assume it's just for women, but it's not. It's for everyone with a pelvis. She's a faculty member with the Herman and Wallace Pelvic Rehabilitation Institute and also regularly guest lectures at local programs and universities. Jessica, thank you for coming. Thank you so much for having me today. Yeah, we have a lot of questions for you, and I would love it if you could just start by giving our listeners a little Physiology Anatomy 101 of the pelvic floor and how it relates to emotions.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I am a pelvic health physical therapist, and it's really interesting because I think that when people think about physical therapy, they tend to think a lot about you know, muscles and strengthening and, you know, someone doing exercises with a TheraBand and things like that. But when you really get into treating the pelvic floor, it really starts becoming so much more complicated than that, because the pelvic floor within the pelvis is a part of the body that is very interconnected within our physiology. So our bladder, our bowel function is connected in there. And it also is really connected with our sexual health. And then it tends to be part of our body that's also very tied to our emotion, tied to our defense as a person too. So you know, if if it's okay, if I jump a little more into the anatomy because I'm very, I love anatomy and and I love pelvic floor anatomy. So (laughs) if you're not familiar with the pelvic floor, the pelvic floor muscles are sitting inside the pelvis. If you put your hands on your hips, you would feel those two big bones of your pelvis, and in the front you have your pubic bones, in the back. at the very bottom of your spine, you have your tailbone. So the pelvic floor muscles run from your pubic bone to your tailbone. They wrap around the urethra at the base of the penis. If you have a penis, they uh, wrap around the vagina, if you have a vagina, and then connect to the tailbone. And there are three layers of the muscles, and they do several just very important jobs for us. So first, they're the very base of support for our organs. They support your bladder um, and your rectum, your colon in the pelvis, as well as your uterus, if you have one. They also are involved in posture and stability, so they have a synergistic relationship with your deep abdominal muscles, your breathing diaphragm, your low back muscles, and contract and relax at various amounts based on what you're doing during the day. So they're very active all the time. And then they're really involved in the bladder and the bowel function. And this is what I kind of call their popular functions. Most people, if they've heard about them, know of them in terms of being told maybe during a pregnancy or something like do Kegel so that you don't leak afterwards. And they're involved in in, you know, compressing around the urethra to hold back urine, doing the same for stool and then opening to allow you to go to the bathroom. And then they're really involved in sexual health. And so from a sexual standpoint, this superficial layer of the muscles actually con- um, connect into the erectile tissue around the clitoris and at the penis and aid in pulling blood into those areas. So they're very involved in arousal. They rhythmically contract and relax for orgasm and they open, to allow for insertion. Um, So they're hugely important sexual muscles. And then we get to this other piece, which is this idea of threat and our emotion. And so one of my favorite studies actually was a study that was looking at how the pelvic floor muscles respond to threat or perceived threat. And what they were doing is comparing a subgroup of people who had what's called vaginismus. And vaginismus refers to painful insertion into the vagina that's related to muscle spasm. And I'm sure we'll talk about that as we talk about some different problems people can have with their sexual health. But their theory, they were comparing that group to the pe- to people who didn't have any problem. And their theory was that the people who had vaginismus would have like this overly sensitive pelvic floor that's really guarded against anything, but that's actually not what they found. So they had the people watch a series of video clips. There were clips that were very neutral. There were clips that were considered to be sexually threatening clips that were considered physically threatening and clips that were considered erotic. And what they actually found is that during both the sexually threatening and the physically threatening clips all of the people regardless of their diagnosis demonstrated contraction of their pelvic floor activation of it and so the thought is that the pelvic floor is likely one of the muscles not the only one in the body that actually has this defensive protective guarded role against threat or perceived threat, which I think, you know, also just makes the muscles a super, super interesting, interesting structure for me to treat and stuff. And one that I think everyone needs to know a lot about.
1: Yeah, definitely. That is so, so fascinating. Can can I ask, (laughs) sorry, this is where my brain went, but you can uh, ask anything. uh, Okay. So, so it was the sexual and the physical threat that caused everything to do it. What about the other ones? Did they have a specific reaction? No, no so there wasn't a clear identified...
2: No, you know, I'm sure there were some people... I'd have to look at the specifics of the study. I'm sure there were people who had various levels of contraction, but the consistent trend that they saw was with the threatening clips that led to contraction of the pelvic floor.
1: Wow, and they didn't see any distinction between the vaginismus people necessarily or any anything that was, like, distinctive for that. They did
2: not. You know, which is interesting because I think... That matches, honestly, a lot of what I end up seeing in the clinic. You know, When people think about threat, it's easy to jump to those things like the sexually threatening or the physically threatening mm-hmm. stimulus. But the reality is that threat is anything that and and actually threat jumping to even trauma, but trauma being anything that causes us to respond in this fight or flight way. And, and so this can be things that are, you know, physical trauma, sexual trauma or abuse, but this also can be something like the loss of a loved one. It could be going through a really difficult time at your job. It could be Going through something that's really positive, like maybe the birth of your child or, you know, a big move or different stuff like that, that anything that causes the body to really respond with this kind of fight or flight guarded way, I think we can see more activity and activation of the pelvic floor, which, you know, isn't a bad thing but i think that when it persists for a long time without actually having a chance to come down that's when we can kind of see people develop some problems and i've actually seen patients that their pelvic problem which often tends to be different pain related things can end up starting after going through some type of difficult experience or a very stressful period of time for their lives and other things like that
1: yeah that's so fascinating we we talk a lot about that on on the podcast because we talk a lot about the idea of the stress response cycles that have been built up in our bodies over time. You know, we, we think of it as, as more of a psycho-emotional perspective, but the physical mm-hmm. ramifications of that are so fascinating to look at. So kind of going on that same vein, you know, what are the common causes of sexual pain and dysfunction? So that's a big, that's a huge question, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, there are
2: many, many different, different causes. I think that the important thing is if someone is starting to demonstrate some problems with their sexual health, if they notice it, I think it's really important that they first get medically evaluated because it's there's a lot of things that can be physical things that we can help them with and address. But then there are also things like bigger pathologies like cancer and other things like that, that you really do need to make sure you're getting that evaluated and screened for. It's, it's tough because when it comes to sexual health, a lot of people, it tends to be this very private thing that many people don't want to talk about. I've worked with people for other problems and it ends up coming out that they have pain related to sex. And even their partners may not know about it, may not know it's something going on for them. And that really can lead to people not getting help for long periods of time when they should have. So, you know, I think about some of those bigger pathologies, but then also there can be problems related to skin. So people can have different dermatological conditions that might need treatment that can cause them to get irritation during sex, you know, especially during insertion. They're also, if someone has decreased estrogenization of their tissue. So you know, um, thinking more in terms of vulvar, vaginal anatomy and stuff, the tissue is meant to have estrogen there that helps to lead to tissue that is, you know, has really good blood flow, has good moisture. And when people have decreased estrogen, sometimes happening as they age but it can also happen after using birth control pills it can also happen after having a baby with breastfeeding then that can lead to decreased estrogen in the tissue and thinning of the tissue and that can contribute to people having some pain with insertion where friction irritation at their tissues and then we have also deeper gynecological problems that can be involved so There are problems like endometriosis that can lead to a deeper pain during sex, other problems that can be going on around the uterus or with the ovaries that can contribute. And then we reach the muscles. And so the pelvic floor muscles themselves can also contribute to pain in all people. But if we're talking specifically in vulva anatomy and vulvar owners, then we would be thinking about pain that is related to insertion, sometimes pain with arousal. And one of the things that we'll see with that is that the muscles often are in kind of an overactive protective state. And when that happens, any type of insertion can lead to a stretch that causes the body to guard and protect against that and the muscles will often guard and protect and that's common with vaginismus but sometimes people have areas of their muscles that are just sensitive and irritated I tell people kind of like you can get a trigger point in your neck you can also have that in your pelvic floor and when those areas are pushed on it can be painful from musculoskeletal perspective it becomes really interesting because there's other connected areas that can impact the pelvic floor, even thinking about what's happening around the abdominal wall. You know, if someone's had surgeries around the abdomen, the scar tissue can pull on some of the fascial structures, which can lead the muscles to being more overactive. And it kind of becomes a vicious cycle when people start experiencing pain during sex because, you know, I tell people, if you were to come into my office and every time you came in, I punched you in the stomach, then one, like you would start not really being excited about coming into my office. You would maybe even like guard embrace coming in. Cause you know, that the minute you come in, I'm going to punch you. And honestly, I mean, and it's a kind of a silly little analogy, but I think the same can be true when people start having pain with sex is, you know, I tell, I tell my patients, your brain is so smart and the brain's like, Hmm, every time we do, do this it hurts. So why are we doing this again? And people will start noticing that their desire decreases, their arousal decreases. It's harder for them to have an orgasm. And it's all very normal brain stuff because the brain's like, Hey, this thing hurts. So let's rethink things. You know, so I mean, there's a lot of other, a, a lot of other factors and stuff too. But the, the big thing I would say here is that one, again, make sure if you are having pain, get a medical evaluation first, know that your muscles can really be big players. And the cool thing is that we actually have a lot of treatment options for people who are experiencing this type of pain. And a lot of it involves, one, helping people connect with their muscles to better understand what their muscles are doing and learn to let go of some of the tension patterns that their body might be carrying. And then we have some more direct treatments that we can do to help to desensitize those tissues, help to gradually help those muscles to lengthen in a way that is not painful for people. And we're able to see some really good results with that. And, you know, and sorry, I'm like going on and on because I love this. and love helping people with these things. But, you know, as we work through the treatment, then there's this big step where we have to help people move from sex no longer being painful
1: to sex becoming enjoyable again. And that's a whole other big thing. That is so fascinating. Thank you. And I especially appreciated when you said vulva owner at one point. And I was like, is that like a common thing? Do you say like, oh, you're a vulva owner?
2: (laughs) I like like to say that because I think that, you know, it's, I think it's important for us to own parts of our bodies and speak really openly about them and stuff. And Uh, I think that, yeah.
1: Yeah. No, it's brilliant. I literally got this image of like going through like a store and being like, oh, I love that vulva. That's like such an awesome. I love the design of it. I love the shape of it. I love the thing. You know what I mean? So I just love that. I, I wanted to just reflect on that. And that. was that was wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. Well,
0: that, lead, that leads perfectly into my question because I think a lot of people, when they see the, the name on a, on a clinic wall that says Women's Health, specialist. You also, you treat all genders. So could you kind of talk about what kind of problems penis owners would have? Yeah. Penis owners, they have their problems too. You know, and honestly, a lot of
2: us in this field are really moving away from the women's health specialty. Right. Um, and, and that being said, you know, I I have colleagues who I respect a lot that are really focused on women's health and really working with women. For me, I've always been a pelvic health specialist. And, and my practice here, you know, we are pelvic health specialists. We work with all genders, all ages, because all people have pelvises and all people have pelvic floor muscles. And so, you know, regardless of your specific anatomy, we can see challenges that come up. So, you know, if you are a Penis owner, you can also have challenges because the pelvic floor muscles are attaching in to the base of the penis and their contraction and relaxation really does aid in erection. So we can, there's some emerging evidence that the pelvic floor muscles themselves could play a role in erectile dysfunction and actually rehabbing those muscles can improve and help someone with their erectile health. Now I'll say similarly As we were talking previously, if someone starts noticing a new symptom, so you start having difficulties with erection or anything like that, you also need to get medically evaluated. Erectile dysfunction can be one of the first signs of cardiac disease, and I have colleagues in pelvic health that have caught someone's cardiac disease and prevented them from having a heart attack by referring them and getting them evaluated when they had an emerging erectile dysfunction. There is some emerging things on what's happening with the pelvic floor in helping to improve blood flow. The pelvic floor muscles have to rhythmically contract and relax for ejaculation as well. And so when someone has dysfunction, when the muscles are weak and underactive or overactive and contracted too much, we can see those different things impacted. One of the common things I see more from a pain standpoint is pain that often will worsen after someone has sex, and so they'll notice. And and honestly, it can go either way. I have people, I have you know, different men I work with who have pelvic pain, and they will have their pain improved when they have sex, which can be because the muscles contracted and relaxed. And for whatever reason, that process, I mean, there's a lot involved with sex too, that can be very good for our nervous system and all of that. But but I do see others that will notice that after they have sex, their symptoms are worse and they'll feel worsened pain. They'll have a lot of throbbing, aching around their pelvis. Often they can feel different, slightly different sensations. We'll hear a lot of symptoms like, you know, I feel this golf ball, Like there's this golf ball in my rectum, this pressure there. They can have pain that radiates to the penis, to the scrotum, in the perineal body, that middle area between the anus and the testicles. And so you can have pain anywhere around that pelvis, but we'll often see that they'll notice it more after sex or or they might notice their erection is less intense than it was
1: previously. And they'll start kind of seeing these small little changes in their sexual health that is so fascinating. It's so fascinating to hear that because I feel like I feel like there's probably a certain level of normalization that we all do in terms of experiencing these things with our partner and just being like, "Oh, that's a something" or "Oh, you should go to a doctor" or something like that. But it's interesting too to actually be like, you know, like you said, medical evaluation is very important, but also that there are other realms, there are other avenues. Sometimes I get in the place where I'm just like, well, why would I go to a doctor unless I, unless I'm dying? They're gonna give me a pill, and I don't want a pill. But there's so many other options, and it's really, really good to hear that. So. Yeah. You know, sorry, sorry. Just no, one no, little no. thing I'll say on that is I always try to really empower my,
2: my patients to say, you know, I think our culture, people often feel if they go see a medical doctor that they have to do what the medical doctor says, because mm-hmm. there's this authority that they have. And what I tell them is, you know, you can go and get screening and ask their opinion and you can see what the pros and cons are of the treatment they suggest, but you don't have to do anything that they suggest. Like you are your own person and you get to make choices for your own health and and i've had patients they'll go somewhere just to get screening because they're like i want to make sure this is nothing that i need you know a big medical thing i need to treat because it could be a danger to me and if it's not then they're like thank you for your suggestions but i'm gonna go this other route and stuff so i think it's important people feel empowered to make those choices
1: for their bodies you know i i'm like mic drop Good. Let's, let's, let's all just like, listen to that moment. Right. Cause it's true. Cause so many people give up their power to their doctors, thinking mm-hmm. that their doctors are there and then they find out a level of betrayal at some later point. Cause they're like, Oh, I should have gotten another opinion or I should have done something else. Or I said, you know, I should have followed my instinct of what I wanted to do. And, and so often that doesn't happen. So, yeah. yeah. So the question is if you have a partner, who is experiencing something like that, what what are some of the things that we can do, you know, should partners be sensitive about or be encouraging their partners to do if it's not themselves? Yeah, and, and I'm so glad that you asked that
2: because I think that One of the biggest things that I see the struggles that my patients who themselves are dealing with pain will have is related to their partner. And I think, you know, part of it comes from the standpoint of we all tend to take things personally. I'll say, and I hope you all hear me that if your partner is having pain related to sex, it likely has nothing to do with you or how they feel about you or anything like that. Now, you know, it, there, there are other factors and different things that can be going on. But a lot of the times, you know, if if you have a great relationship with your partner, we don't have to assume immediately that someone having pain means that they're not interested in having sex with you. And and I think that the hard thing is that when people experience pain and then suddenly their partner starts to make them feel guilty or take it personally that it must be because you're not attracted to me and you're not aroused and stuff by me, that that ends up being really inhibiting. It's a lot for the patient to take on who already is dealing with the fact that they're dealing with pain. And so I think the biggest thing I would say first is that we we often need to with things like this, take a step back away from the moment. So not like the minute you find out your partner's having sex during sex type of thing, but afterwards sit down and just talk about it, communicate about, you know, what are you feeling? You know, I noticed you, you know, wincing and different things like that. It, was it hurting for you while we were having sex? And let's talk about it. Let's talk about what you were noticing and why. And then start to really support them and encourage them in terms of getting help. You know, asking them questions like, you know, have you have you talked to your doctor about that? I think you really should. You know, let's let's try to help because the ultimate goal, sex should be something that is enjoyable for both parties, you know, and if it's not for one, then helping and supporting that person and making active steps to get that improved is, is a positive thing. I tell my patients, you know, a lot of them when they're dealing with it, feel really isolated. They feel alone that like this is, or they'll even tell me like, I just feel bad because I have this problem and my partner doesn't have this problem and it's me. And I tell them, you know, unless you're having sex by yourself, pain during sex is an us problem. It's not a you problem. And the more people can be a team in terms of trying to see how can we as a team have have Pleasurable, enjoyable sex—the better it is, and and I'll tell you that when people come at this as a team thing, we we just tend to see that people make better progress. Everyone feels so much more supported. The other thing that I'll say is, you know, always remember, you know, if sex for you involves insertion, you know that. Sex doesn't have to only be insertion. And I think what can happen sometimes is people start having pain that's related to insertion, and it can make them stop having any form of intimacy because they're worried that it's going to lead to insertion and you know I like I said if I kept punching you in the stomach every time you came in my office you're gonna like not even want to be in my office you're gonna get nervous when I call you because you don't want to get punched in the stomach again and and I've had patients where it really kind of becomes this cycle for them where they'll tell me you know hey like my partner comes up and rubs my back and immediately I'm like whoa you know, because, which, which is again, their brain being a normal brain that's trying to protect against this thing that hurts. And so I think that's where the communication piece is so important to have that communication. And if your partner is having difficulty with a certain aspect of sex to talk together and say, you know, how, how, what are, let's talk about some ways that we can be intimate, that is still enjoyable for you. And what can we do to make our intimacy and our pleasure better as a couple?
1: Yeah, that's brilliant. Thank you. Because we talk about it also from like a spiritual perspective and an energy perspective too, is this idea that like there's a masculine or, you know, a yin and a yang energy. And when they need to come together, if if the, the yang energy isn't able to kind of go to their pole, you know, in terms of the polarization of the of the two energies, it makes it harder for the yin to. It's always a partnership. So the partnership comes with the function and with the dysfunction. So that's really great. Yes,
2: yes. yes and I have, like goosebumps as you're saying that, because I just think there's, I, I wish truly for all of my patients that they could go at this from a, in a partnership, because I just think that there's so much isolation people feel and they feel broken. You know, I'll talk to my patients and they, and they don't even want to tell their partner because they feel broken and they feel like they're this person having this challenge. But the amazing thing is that when they actually approach this as a, team and they start to make improvements, they will find such great changes. And I've had couples that towards the end of their care, they're like, we're having better sex than we've ever had. And part of it has to do with building actually intimacy together and being able to really, yeah, there's, I just have more goosebumps because it's, it's so, so important. That's wonderful. Thank you.
0: I love that. Thank you. So I had a question, which isn't necessarily sexually related, but I wanted to ask, what is not normal, but assumed to be normal functioning in people of all genders? For example, people think that peeing, having urinary incontinence or wetting their pants every time they cough after having a baby is normal. Other people think it's normal to be chronically constipated. And I just kind of wanted to ask you, can you give us some examples of things that are not normal that people just assume are normal regarding their pelvic health?
2: Yeah, for sure. And you know, I and mean, we can start with related to sexual health. And like we've been talking about pain is not normal. You know, healthy tissues, healthy muscles shouldn't hurt when they are touched. And so if yours are, that's really not a normal thing that you should deal with. Even if you've had a baby, even if you're older, even if you're younger, even if you haven't had sex for a while, it, you know, the tissues are really made to be able to move and, you know, stretch and they shouldn't hurt. I think that when we think about other pelvic things there's a lot of other misunderstandings people have one of the big ones is related to bowel health you know i hear people all the time with things like you know constipation is the number one gi complaint in the country and and i think that if we actually looked at all the people who aren't complaining but actually but deal with it it's way bigger than people would think constipation can be connected to all of these other pelvic health problems. And so, you know, I've had patients that literally treating their constipation helps them not have pain with sex anymore, helps them stop stop leaking urine, like their back feels better. It just is very related to the body. But there's a lot of misunderstandings we'll see. Like one is that a lot of people will say things like, oh, you know, constipation just runs in my family. My mom dealt with constipation. My grandma dealt with constipation. And while there are some different genetic things that can be involved, it does doesn't mean that you should just not worry about it and not try to do something to improve it or that you're not treatable because you have a family history of this. Similarly, I think people will... I kind of think that just if they're not having really regular bowel movements and they have to strain when they have a bowel movement, that that's just something like, that's just who I am. I've just always been a little bit constipated, but, but those things are having healthy bowel movements is so important. And it's very, it's a very treatable thing and important to get treated because it impacts so much else around the pelvis. And then I think it's important to talk about all the postpartum after birth things. You know, you mentioned the the leaking. Like that's a big one I see all the time and not just with coughing or sneezing, but you know, I'll hear different people say like, Oh, you know, I, I can't jump on the trampoline with my kids because I'm going to pee all over myself. And everyone kind of laughs about it. And it's like, no, you, I mean, you should not just be okay with the fact that you're going to pee on yourself when you jump on the trampoline, like you can get treated for that. There's help for that. And, and I'll see that with sexual health too, that, you know, some patients will say, I'll see them when they're like in their sixties and they had their babies when they were in their you know, twenties to thirties. And they'll be like, Oh yeah, well, I always have a little bit of pain during sex, but it's just because I had a tear and, you know, it was after having a baby and, and those are things that are treatable too. And so I think the big thing is, you know, things that are common, it doesn't
1: make them normal. And it doesn't mean that there's nothing that we can do to make it better. That's so super interesting too. Cause like you said, like It just becomes the pain that people take on, right? They just take on throughout their life and and they have a story in their head as to why it is. And therefore it's okay. It's justifiable because I have a story. I understand why it happens. I know Mm -hmm. it's not anything else that's bad, but I do know that, you know, I had a tear and therefore I have pain. And that is the consequence of this experience. Like it's really, yeah, that's a really fascinating psychology as well. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. People are doing there. So on the converse... What are things that are actually normal, but people assume aren't? Yeah. So I think first we just have to talk about the vulva and the
2: vagina, because I think that that is, it's a part of the body that often is so associated with shame. And there's a lot of misunderstandings, lots of attempts to change it instead of just accepting it for what it is, a vulva. And so I think, you know, like simple things like like the vulva should, the vagina should have normal discharge. It's normal, it's protective it, I think people can worry a lot about that and they want to try to mask it and hide it and do different things like that. But the discharge is normal for the vagina. The vulva does not require any special cleaning solutions. We do not have to, there's this whole market for feminine hygiene, which is like ridiculous because it is a normal part of the body. And it's a, actually a pretty cool part of the body. It cleans itself. And so you do not, you know, I tell my patients, it's a self-cleaning oven. It takes care of itself. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to add sprays and all these special washes and stuff like that. You literally can shower, rinse water over your vulva. It's good, you know? So I think that that's a huge misunderstanding people have. And then similarly, the vagina should smell like a vagina. And so it shouldn't, you know, one of my favorite gynecologists, Jen Gunter, who's very outspoken on social media and stuff like that. And she's just great. But she recently did this post about how your vagina shouldn't smell like a pina colada. And there are all these products that are like tropical stuff that you can put on your vagina. And it's like, no, you don't, it should smell like a vagina. That's what it is. It's a normal part of the body. And so you don't have to add lotions and creams and stuff to make it smell differently or like this vanilla cupcake. Like it's not, it's a vagina. So (laughs) let it be a vagina, you know? So, so I think that that, I mean, honestly, like that's a big one, but there's, I mean, there's so much more stuff I could say, but I think that's the big one that I see so much misunderstandings people have
1: around there. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, there's there's no doubt that that is a very misunderstood area. And and also just one that that has a lot of, um, in a culture, especially somewhat, you know, toxic masculine patriarchy culture that we have is that, you know, that is one of the key jokes, right? Is like, oh, what does this smell like? And it's like, hmm defy the patriarchy yeah fuck the patriarchy let your vagina smell like a vagina that's right (laughs) so i
0: have a question so when we were doing the research for this season i found a lot of great articles like masturbation means to defile with hand and then i read a whole article on the pudendal nerve which is a pelvic floor nerve a nerve in the pelvis that pudendal actually means to be shameful or something. So there's a lot of shame in the human body. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how we can prevent sexual shame or body shame in our children.
2: Yeah, it's such an important question. And, you know, for myself as a parent, I have a five-year-old and a two-year-old, 2 little girls. And it's something honestly, I think about a lot because I think it's something so many of us dealt with in our lives. And I think the biggest thing is communication, letting bodies and bodily functions just be normal bodies and bodily functions. And I think that we do that by giving kids words early on, allowing them space to ask questions about their bodies and speak openly about their bodies and giving them the the appropriate anatomic terms for what their body is. And the cool thing about kids is I think, you know, a lot of the shame that many adults deal with, kids don't have that naturally. They're not born feeling shameful about their bodies. We put that on them as time goes on, but it's really cool when you give them space to actually talk and ask questions and give them terms because it allows them to, you know, communicate more with you in a... in I think a very very important and healthy way, you know, I with my daughters very early on, like as even I mean even as they were having words, I would say, okay, we need to clean around your vulva. We need to, you know, da da etc. Like give them those anatomy terms, and it's amazing because as they've gotten older, there's times where they'll come be like, mommy, my like one said once like my my bottom is hurting, and I'm like, oh, where where on your bottom? And she's like, I, I think it's my vulva that's hurting, and it's and she can show me like you know in And I think when we don't give kids those words, it makes it really hard for them to communicate with us. And there's a lot with that, you know, for one, for, I mean, medical stuff, but then also I think we have to think about safety and protecting our kids from, you know, I I know there's so much about that, you know, trying to protect them and give them words to talk about their bodies. But I think the more we do that I allow them to ask questions and allow them to explore their bodies, it's a natural thing for them to want to know about their body. And I think a lot of times people will jump into like, oh, don't touch that or don't, you know, it, it's like, oh, that's they'll say things like, you know, oh, like that's that's dirty or different things like that. Then it starts to build that shame and makes it feel like something not safe or good for them to. Be interested in. And, you know, and I think instead giving them space to explore their bodies, giving them appropriate times, like, oh, you know, it's probably not good to touch your vulva at the dinner table, but you, you know, but if you want to, it's yours. You can go to your room. You can you go to the bathroom, give them spaces and stuff to explore. But I think the and the biggest thing, honestly, I think with that is communication and talking with them openly about things. And I think, you know, doing that from a very early age in an age appropriate way then helps them as they get older to feel like they can speak openly about other things, about their sexuality, about, you know, it's all those other pieces. Whereas if we don't do that, and then suddenly we expect them to be open with us when they're older, we haven't set any framework for them to do that. That makes,
0: yeah, totally. Thank you.
1: Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. And it it reminds me of my daughter. We were talking about Volvo and she's like, that sounds like a car. And I was like, yeah, there's a car called a Volvo. Like, <laughs> we're all wondering why, you know, I know it's Swedish. It must not be anything close to the US. So but the funny thing is the Volvo symbol is actually the male symbol. Like that's like it's traditional thing, which I was always just like, that's anyway. Interesting. Well, yeah. Total non sequitur. Anyways. So what I love is is you're talking about, you know, that there's on social media there are a lot of gynecologists, there are a lot of people who are doing more pelvic floor awareness, pelvic floor health awareness, things like that. Why do you think it is that we're getting more recognition for these things at this time? I think there's a lot of things that
2: go into that, honestly. You know, I think part of it is that social media, I think has allowed people to have information more at their fingertips and more and more people, you know, whereas information used to be in some ways, like very protected, like you had to go to your doctor and talk to them and they would share information with you. Now more and more providers are just putting things out there. So there's a lot more education, very readily available at people's fingertips. And I think that that gives people the space to, want to share more also because it it normalizes it. There's something about, from a social standpoint, seeing that you're not the only one who's dealing with this type of thing that, you know, to, to just kind of give you the courage to, to start speaking more openly about those things. And, you know, I think there's some interesting things also with the current time that we're in with the pandemic that we've all been going through since March of 2020. And from a pelvic health world, we have actually seen from a pelvic floor rehab standpoint, standpoint just a, a big increase in people seeking help for their pelvic floor challenges and I've had a lot of conversations with colleagues because you know at first people were saying like oh it must be people are at home they're googling more they're you know etc but I actually do think that everything with the pandemic, I think has also led to an increase in pelvic floor related problems, particularly related to overactivity and tension in the pelvic floor. And with what we were talking about earlier, it really makes a lot of sense. You know, it has been the past two years has been such a huge threat in many ways for so many of us, you know, with whether it's, you know, a lot of fears related to being sick or loved ones being sick, but then also so much with parents with dealing with school and virtual school and what are things going to look like for all of this and, you know, job security and all this different stuff that people have dealt with. And so we consider that threat and that persisting threat for two years, it's very, understandable that the pelvic floor would respond this way and I, I really do think that that is why we're starting to see even more pelvic floor problems come up and probably a combination of things that people are starting to become more knowledgeable. they're able to seek help earlier on, have more information about where to go. they you know nowadays are taking their health into their own hands more you know more often paired with all the stress leading to exacerbation of current problems as well.
0: Mhm. Yeah. And and like we could say spiritually too like there's there's major shifts in the patriarchy dying basically like new models of power coming forward. And and speaking of that, speaking of taking your own health in your own hands, if anyone's listening and they do identify with some of the problems you've discussed today, what are ways that they can seek out a pelvic floor therapist?
2: So there's lots of different resources out there. There are several great directories. The institute that I teach for, the Herman Wallace Pelvic Rehabilitation Institute, has a directory at pelvicrehab.com. So you can go there and look for different providers that are in your area. The American Physical Therapy Association Academy of Pelvic Health also has a directory. Their directory, you do have to be a member to be listed there versus pelvicrehab.com. Anyone can be listed. Okay. But if you don't find someone in those, in those through those searches, I wouldn't give up. I mean, honestly, I encourage people to go to Google and search for pelvic floor physical therapist in your area and see who's out there and look at their training. Social media can be a great place to find people too. I am on social media, my Instagram handle is at Southern Pelvic Health, and I'm always really happy to help direct you to resources in your area. I'm very connected in the Pelvic physical therapy community. And so feel free to shoot me a DM there. And I'm super happy to help you find and identify resources locally for you as well. Yeah.
0: And I'll definitely put all those links in our show notes. So if you're listening on an app, just go to our website, show notes, and I'll have all the links there for you, as well as Jessica's information. If a listener is not in a state with direct access, they need to go to their primary care doctor or their obstetrician and get an order. Like what's just kind of, what are the like how-to steps for someone who has no understanding?
2: Sure, sure. And I would say, you know, most states nowadays, I think, do have some level of direct access. And so you can always, if you find a clinician, Call them and ask, you know, do I need a referral or can I come to you directly? I know in the state of Georgia, people can just come to us directly for a certain period of time without a referral. With any of these problems, we do want you to be medically evaluated as well. And so you can reach out to your primary care doctor, your OBGYN, urologist, colorectal doctor, someone you're established with, and talk with them about these things and if they can give you a referral to see a pelvic floor physical therapist. And so that. Can be a good way to get medically evaluated and also get you to the care that you need awesome
1: really interesting because it's interesting because i kind of related to that i feel like you guys are doing the thing which is the good thing which is go get evaluated and figure out what exercises are good for you the reason I asked that is because ever since I was a young person, you pronounced it differently than I normally, I usually say kegels or is it kegels? Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, tomato, tomato, kegels, kegels. You'll hear them both. I'm sure there is an exact right way to say it. But it's so interesting because I've always heard that that is like, it seems to be the cure-all. Right. It also seems to be a little bit of the patriarchy coming in there of like, hey, you can be better at sex. It's not about your pelvic floor health. Is Kegels actually the cure all that everyone thinks it is or is is it really necessary to kind of to, to kind of go and say, actually, the, this this is not as good. This may not be the best exercise for you. And there are actually other ones that are better. Something along those lines. I cannot even tell you how glad I am that you brought this up because it is
2: one of my really big things is that you know so many people think that strengthening that contract your pelvic floor a million times do kegels that is going to be the thing that Gets you the healthy functioning pelvic floor. And you'll even see articles that are like, oh, you wanna have a better orgasm? Do Kegels. You wanna do this? And I'll tell you in my own practice, we see a lot of people actually harmed from doing tons of Kegels, that they'll say, I started doing this and then now I'm having pelvic pain. I started doing this, I noticed this. Because the reality is that when we think about the pelvic floor, like any other muscle in the body, we need muscles that are strong that are flexible and that are appropriately coordinated so that they contract and relax at the right times based on the task and whatever it is that you're doing and so i think that you know just the idea like you were saying like it, the the patriarchy but you know the idea that a tight vagina is the ultimate goal like that is not honestly the most healthy state for the muscles the reality is that we want muscles that can contract and lift that can relax and lengthen and it's interesting because I've actually treated people who have pain during sex who will worry that treating their tension in their muscles their overactivity is going to decrease the pleasure during penetrative intercourse for their partner and And I'm like, no, 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 (laughs) no. It's first of all, like one, your partner really should care how you feel during sex. And so if sex is painful for you, that should be alone enough that we need to change this. Two is that for that person, having flexibility in their muscles often actually will lead to better sexual satisfaction. I've had a lot of patients that as their muscles actually have more movement and more length to them, they will actually come back and say like, oh my gosh, I had like the best orgasm I've ever had because the contraction and relaxation is what actually allows those, that blood flow change, the orgasm, during orgasm, the muscles contract and relax. And so we need both of those things to have the, our best sexual health. So I would just encourage someone, you know, if you're, if you have gone the route of attempting to do tons of Kegels to fix whatever your pelvic problem is, and it's not better, you're in good company with tons of my patients and you likely need a different approach to optimize your muscles and
1: get your best function. Awesome. Thank you. That is super, super helpful. That's the, that that's fantastic. I have another one, which we may choose to cut out because it doesn't really end. Sure. With the, it doesn't really end the episode, but it is a question that I have, because it may be this myth is that, you know, when I was pregnant, one of the things that they taught us in our dancing for birth class was how we have a tendency to our posture basically makes it so that, you know, especially when we're pregnant and we have all that weight that like, our posture makes it so that our pelvic floor muscles are having to do a lot more work than they should. And they would teach us to rotate and roll our hips back so that our pubic bone was actually carrying more of the weight of the belly and i was like i was always like this this seems like it makes a lot of sense but at the same time i'm also just like i wonder if there's something with like a systemic issue with posture that makes it so that the pelvic floor is also having to do more work and i wonder if that's a myth or not and if you can dispel that for me if that is
2: yeah i mean i don't know if that's necessarily substantiated with what we would see in the research. I think that there are some normal changes to posture that happen during pregnancy to accommodate the growth of the uterus. Um, People can develop some dysfunctional patterns during pregnancy that end up putting more strain on certain parts of their body. And, And sometimes we do help people with getting out of the persisting patterns that they have to try to unload certain areas that might be loaded more. But I don't know if I I don't know if I would say that. Yeah, I don't know if I would say that all the way. It's interesting because with pregnancy, a lot of people assume that, again, that the people who are pregnant need to be doing a lot of Kegels and stuff to like really strengthen their pelvic floor. But it's interesting because when you look at some of the common problems people have during pregnancy related to like pelvic girdle pain, low back pain, that type of thing, there was an interesting study recently that actually found when they examined those patients that most of them actually had overactive pelvic floor muscles contracting more than they should. And so for those people actually doing more lengthening and opening of their pelvic floor was a more optimal treatment approach for them versus doing tons of strengthening. And really we need a combination. So I, you know, I don't want to try to say that like strengthening is not necessary or bad for the pelvic floor because the, the reality is that we all need an individualized approach for us. We need to do what our muscles need, which for some people truly is a strengthening program that can look a lot like doing Kegels initially and integrating it into your movement and all this stuff, but then there's another category of people that need something com- different or me need something different first and then move into strengthening. and so we want to ultimately
1: optimize our function for ourselves. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. that's that's really helpful. Yeah. and I would consider it again the same the same approach that you're saying, which is this idea that like get a specialist who can actually help with your thing and try not to necessarily self-diagnose with with what you know everyone's saying should be the thing that you should do.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you so much for visiting our show, Jessica. We really appreciate it. We hope this information was useful to our listeners. And this bonus is part of the five-part series on sexual consciousness, which will be located in the season three, February 4th and on in the main podcast. And this will show up in the bonus area. So thank you so much. And check out the show notes for more information about how you can follow Jessica on Instagram. Thank you.
2: Thank you so much for having me and chatting today.
1: Absolutely. Thank you got any feedback for us you want to tell us how your shadow work is going or your light work feel free to email us at this.spiritual.fix at gmail.com and remember humility gratitude acceptance done let me tell you all a riddle there are four girls and four apples in a basket every girl takes an apple yet one apple remains in the basket how is this possible the answer One girl took the basket. She took the last apple while it was in the basket. Sometimes all it takes is a perspective shift. Book a free call with me at www.chriswiltsy.com forward slash discover. Hi, y'all. Listening to the last season of this spiritual fix may have stirred up for you some awareness of how the mother wound ties into so many of our subconscious needs and desires in our daily lives. Well, we've put together a comprehensive five-week course on this mother wound, complete with meditations, journal prompts, and never-before-seen videos and lectures. This course is designed for you to heal your personal and cosmic attachment wounds, reparent yourself, and surrender to the Great Mother. This course is an intense experience for spiritual seekers, and maybe you're not ready for something that intense, yet. So we've put together our version of what we call the Shadow Work Essentials course, the Mother Wound Mini, to give you access and awareness to this wound with tools to process your energy and to remember the Cosmic Mother's love for you. I cannot emphasize enough how much this work has changed my relationship with my partner, my kids, my family, and the world. It can be life-changing for you, too. Go to our shop, www.thisspiritualfix.com forward slash shop for more details.